Hello and welcome to this Regulatory Transparency Project virtual event. My name is Dr. Ruin and I'm Associate Director of the Federal Society's Regulatory Transparency Project. Today we're very excited to host a panel discussion titled State Constitutions and Individual Liberty, State or Federal Government as Primary Custodian of Individual Rights. To discuss this topic, we have a fantastic and intellectually diverse panel joining us. In the interest of time, I'll keep intros brief now, but feel free to view their full bios at regproject.org. After a discussion between our panelists, we'll go to audience Q&A. So please enter any questions you have into the Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom window. Finally, a note that as always, all expressions of opinion on today's program are those of the speakers joining us. David A. Carrillo is lecturer in residence and the founding executive director of the California Constitution Center at University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Before entering academia, Dr. Carrillo held a number of governmental roles, including Deputy Attorney General with the California Department of Justice, Deputy yeah. City Attorney in San Francisco, and Deputy District Attorney in Contra Costa County. Christina Sandifer is Executive Vice President at the Goldwater Institute, where her work focuses on developing policies and litigating cases, advancing healthcare freedom, free enterprise, private property rights, free speech, and taxpayer rights. Robert F. Williams is Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of the Center for State Constitutional Studies at Rutgers University School of Law. Professor Williams is an expert in state constitutional law, has authored numerous articles and books, participated in a wide range of litigation, and lectured to state judges and lawyers on the topic. And finally, our moderator today is Braden Buchek. Braden is Director of Litigation at the Southeastern Legal Foundation, where he handles a variety of litigation focused on constitutional issues, particularly at the state level. Previously, Braden served as Vice President of Legal Affairs at the Beacon Center of Tennessee, and as an Assistant United States Attorney for more than nine years. So as you can tell, no shortage of state constitutional knowledge and experience on today's panel. With that, I will get out of the way, Braden, and pass things over to you. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having us. I'm really excited about this panel, not just because I think this is such an exciting and timely topic, although I think it is. Um, this is a topic uh, that I'm deeply personal and passionate about, but I'm also really excited because I think we just have such a great rock star um, slate of panelists here. Um, of course, you know, David, thank you for joining us at this point in time. You're kind of like a regular on my couch. I like to think you're sort of the proverbial Burt Reynolds to my Johnny Carson. Um, oh, I don't know how you feel yeah. about that comparison, but yeah, that, I, that, I that's that. high praise for me, right? <laughs> he's a handsome He's a handsome guy. Can you do the Burt Reynolds laugh? Not at all. Okay, so I'm not going to put you on the spot then. I'm terrible at that. Yeah, but thanks for joining us again. We've really enjoyed having you. Bob Williams, Bob, I'm really glad you're here. This is a, a first time for, to have you here, but as everybody knows, you're a titan in the area of state constitutional laws. We are overjoyed that you would join us on this uh, important topic. So thank you, Bob, for joining us. And uh, Christina, deep personal thanks for you joining as well. Um, you and I are old friends at this point in time. Um, probably uh, some of the listeners are familiar with you and familiar with uh, the work of Goldwater, but um, you know, you're one of the leading practitioners in state constitutional law and Goldwater's got a, a unique role vis-a-vis -vis some spreading state constitutional jurisprudence throughout the country. I hope at some point in time um, on this panel, you can find ways to talk a little bit more about the work you do and the work of Goldwater. Thanks for joining us, Christina. Thank you. And you know, uh, no introduction um, would be complete without noting the fallen. We have lost uh, Luke Icebox Wake. Uh, the regular panelist that we like to have here is not joining us. I'm sure he is listening. Um, but you know, uh, in honor of the release of Top Gun 2, I want to express a deep, heartfelt sorrow that Luke Icebox is not joining us. Um, so with that in mind, let's go ahead and uh, plunge, plunge right in. State constitutions are an exciting topic. We are undereducated as Americans on the subject of state constitutional law, grossly undereducated. And uh, that's really just because we are taught exclusively about the US Constitution or the federal constitution. What I'd like to do coming out of the gate is to just kind of give some point of orientation by talking about when we talk about state constitutions, what are we talking about? How are they more expansive protections of individual liberty? What are some examples and how are they distinct from the federal provisions? Christine, I'm gonna hand you the ball first. I know you've conceptualized state con law provisions into three separate categories. Maybe you could start by sharing that and explain what it means. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, our state constitutions were always conceived of um, from the time of the federal constitution. I like to say that the framers of our constitution didn't just give us one constitution, instead they gave us what now is 51, because every single state, as you noted, has its own constitution. Um, and really the way our framers conceived of this is that the federal constitution would provide a floor of protection for our rights. So that's the bare minimum. Um, but 
states are free and often do, uh, you know, go beyond that floor of protections and they can enact laws or or constitutional provisions to protect our rights more broadly than the federal constitution. And and again, the framers of the constitution designed it this way. James Madison famously wrote in the Federalist, um, you know, that this would provide a double security for the people's rights. And this has been this sentiment has been echoed uh, throughout our history, um, you know, Supreme Court justices that are on both sides of the political spectrum. Justice Brennan uh, was famous for trying to revive an interest in state constitutional provisions. And then you have uh, justices more on the right as well that often refer to them. So um, so this is a deep tradition in our American constitutional history. But what a lot of folks don't realize is that state constitutions actually have many unique provisions that do not have federal counterparts. So if you look at the state, the constitutions of states and, and you know, they vary widely from state to state, um, but they'll contain provisions to place limitations on government and protect rights uh, that do not exist at all in the federal constitution. So one of my favorites is something called the gift clause. Actually, almost every single state constitution has a gift clause. Um, and what this essentially is, is an anti-subsidy clause. It makes it illegal for governments to give taxpayer money uh, in the form of subsidies or, or sometimes even loans to private entities. Now, every you know state constitutional gift clause works a little bit differently, but essentially these all came out of the 19th century when you know government was uh, governments at the local level and the state level were subsidizing railroads and and banks and other corporations left and right, and they had hoped that in doing that they could stimulate economic development. And I raise that I I'll go into that just because that is something that we hear a lot about today as well uh, on the federal level. Of course, there is no federal gift clause. One would could not imagine maybe what uh, Congress would do with all of its time if we had a federal gift clause. But um, what happened is they quickly learned the lesson in the 19th century that you know these subsidies oftentimes led to waste or corruption. Um, many states went nearly bankrupt because of these massive subsidies. And so states amended their constitutions especially the Western states, uh, to include these gift clauses. And the idea is just that government can't just give away taxpayer money. It can purchase things that are for a truly public purpose. Um, and then it has to, you know, essentially buy those things as public goods or services. It can't just pay exorbitant amounts of money and not get something specifically bargained back uh, for taxpayers in return. Uh, we at the Goldwater Institute have um, enforced this clause in the state of Arizona and, and outside of the state of Arizona. One of um, what I think was one of our most impactful wins is a case that um, came to the Arizona Supreme Court where uh, the court told the city of Phoenix that it actually was unconstitutional for it to give a hundred million dollar uh, gift of taxpayer money essentially to a mall just to get a shopping mall to locate in the city of Phoenix versus a neighboring city. And the city of Phoenix said, well, this will, you know, generate tax revenue and it'll create jobs. But those things are too nebulous um, and they don't count for purposes of a gift clause. So that was a subsidy. The government wasn't buying anything for taxpayers. Um, so that's one provision, again, that just doesn't exist in the federal constitution. State constitutions also have things called special law clauses, which say that you can't, you know, bestow special favors on particular groups. Uh, you have to you have to write the law in a very broadly applicable way, or at least the law has to be something that people can, uh, you know, take advantage of uh, and, and that everyone is eligible essentially to meet the criteria. Um, states have anti-monopoly clauses, which say that governments can't create monopolies. Our, our uh, groups in the freedom movement have used these effectively against um, certificate state certificate of need laws when uh, government, when state agencies will say that in order to start your business, you actually have to prove to the government bureaucrats that there is a need for your business before uh, you can get permission to start that business uh, and your com existing competitors can actually object and claim that you know they've got it handled and they don't need you to enter the market. So our argument is, well, that is by definition a monopoly. Um, those, of course, provisions don't exist in the federal constitution. 
Um, you know, so those are some of the unique provisions. State constitutions, uh, you were mentioning other categories, Brayden. I mean, they also contain a lot of positive rights. That's not typically the way that we conceive of rights. Um, I think our founding fathers very clearly conceived of rights as being, you know, negative. These are rights that things that government cannot intrude on, not things that we have some kind of positive right to. Um, but those exist in a lot of state constitutions. And then also, of course, and I'm sure we'll get into this uh, throughout the conversation, state constitutions also contain provisions that are very similar or, or even sometimes exactly the same as exist in the federal constitution. And those can be interpreted differently than the federal courts interpret those analogous constitutional provisions. Thanks for that. Now, David, I know you've got a conceptual framework for understanding state constitutional laws as well. Do you mind sharing that with us and discussing a little bit of some of the unique constitutional law provisions that have caught your attention? Yeah, it, uh, I don't want to replicate too much of uh, what my my learned colleague just described for us accurately. Um, so I was going to focus on the, the specific individual rights um, using California as an example. So you, know, so you could generally uh, divide the differences in state constitutions from the federal constitution in, into several broad categories, uh, as she just did. You know, so there's structural provisions, uh, individual rights provisions, and then um, you know, sort of more specific prohibitions on government conduct. Um, so focusing on individual liberty and using California as an example, um, I think you get a range of um, differentiation in state court application and interpretation of individual liberties. Um, it's partly dependent on the text. You know, so is the text of the state provision the same as or pretty close to or completely different from the federal provision or is the, the state provision uh, unique in that uh, there's no analog to it in the federal constitution at all. Um, and it also can change over time. Um, so for example, um, California formerly had a Fourth Amendment search and seizure type uh, provision um, that was interpreted much more broadly by the California Supreme Court than, than federal courts did. Uh, the voters in California in 1982 changed that by constitutional amendment and locked California's criminal procedural rights to federal law. Um, so it used to be different, now it's the same. Um, you can have sort of same, same provisions where California's equal protection provision mostly looks like federal equal protection law, except uh, we don't do in intermediate scrutiny. It's only rational basis and strict scrutiny. Um, moving on, on to the, the farther end of the spectrum towards things that are very different. Um, California has, has a much stricter separation of church and state uh, set of provisions. Um, those, those arguably are, are in peril right now, given recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions in Espinoza versus Montana and um, Carson versus Macon this week. Uh, things that are very different are speech. Uh, California's speech rights do not have a state action requirement. It runs against private actors. Um, California also has some express textual provisions that are just completely absent from the federal constitution. So they're, they're on the unique end of the spectrum. Uh, rights to privacy, education, uh, which is an example of a positive right. Uh, rights to fish, which I think is unique in state constitutions. So we have a whole article on water rights. Um, so again, I would divide it into, you know, are you looking at structural provisions, individual liberties, or, or the other, you know, sort of catch-all provision and focusing on, on the individual liberties categories. Um, there, there, there's a range and a spectrum, um, so it really depends on what right you're talking about and, and what point in time you're talking about it. Bob, any response to any of that? And in particular, are there any particular state constitutional law provisions that you find notable or remarkable that the other panelists haven't touched upon? I'm going to go ahead and say what I've been told countless times over the pandemic. Counselor, you're muted. No longer. Sorry. Uh, I have construction noise and moving noise outside the door. Um, I thought Christina's introduction was terrific, and I would add to it only a couple of things. One that, of course, at the time of the framing of the federal constitution, we already had 11 or so state constitutions. and. Uh, Many of them had their own declarations of rights. So when Madison and others worked on the Federal Bill of Rights, they actually used the state declarations of rights as their form book. Um, and none of the examples Christina gave were in any of the original state constitutions. So the state constitutions actually have been described as a sort of a, a, a window on the history of the states. And essentially what they do, in addition to many other things, is reflect the bad actions of states and uh, the amendment process, which of course is much easier 
than the United States Constitution Amendment process has been used to try to close the door on those various sorts of uh, abuses or per, at least perceived abuses uh, in the state governments and local governments. So that's one of the extremely important things about working with state constitutions is they're, they're malleable, uh, amendable, changeable textually, not just through interpretation. So um, I, I, I think that, and for her to focus on the special laws provision, I think is particularly uh, uh, fitting because that's not even an individual right. It's, a, it's over in the legislative article in most states. And it's actually a limit on the government, the way the legislature makes laws. But for those of us who do litigation, uh, it's available to our clients who immediately would look at a, a classification case, say, and say, oh, well, uh, uh, that's equal protection. That's what that is. And maybe, but as we know in federal con law, mostly that's a losing argument. Uh, and in the states, there's much more possibility. I think David mentioned the California, I like to call them equality clauses, because most of them don't say equal protection. California's uh, does. But, so, sorry? California's California does. does say that, yes. But, yeah. but not a lot of states do. And those equality cases, you, equality clauses often come from a very different period in history. Uh, and they're actually about treating people better than others rather than treating people worse. Uh, and just let me say a couple of things about what David said. It's very useful, I think, as he's done to provide a sort of a typology of the kinds of rights guarantees that we're gonna be talking about. Um, but once you do that typology of four or five different kinds of state constitutional individual rights provisions. Uh, and once you identify the type that you are dealing with, it's important to drill down even deeper. Of course, David and, and Christina would know this. Um, but for example, if you have a clause that reads identically to the federal clause, most often search and seizure, sometimes free speech. I, uh, a lot of them are free speech provisions to frame quite differently as, as affirmative guarantees, not negative guarantees. All people may speak and write freely on any subject whatsoever. Holy yeah, cow. Yeah, that's what California does. Okay, yeah, they have to be responsible for abusing that so we can still have defamation and, and, and that kind of thing. But um, once you say, okay, I'm dealing with something that's just like uh, the federal clause, has the US Supreme Court already dealt with a right that you want to assert? And if, and if it has and said no to that, has ruled against the assertion of that right under the federal constitution, you're gonna be um, subject to what I call a shadow or sometimes I call it a glare. I'm not sure what it really is. Shown or, or obstructed on your litigation by the Supreme Court decision. Uh, and many state courts, we'll get to this, I think, say they're gonna interpret uh, clauses like this the same way the US Supreme Court does. And I think there are two key um, responses to that, uh, among others. One is how convincing is the majority opinion? State judges don't have to follow it. This was a big revelation to state judges 30 or 40 years ago when I first started teaching this stuff, I mean, you could see these uh, women and guys say, you mean, wait a minute, we can disagree with the US Supreme Court? And you say, yes, if they've ruled against federal rights, you can be above the national standard, above the floor, as Christina said, uh, and, and be more protective. Often it was thought to be more liberal, but, uh, that's not what the Goldwater Institute is litigating, I don't think. Uh, it's as, as Chief Justice Mosk said um, out in California, it's neither liberal nor, nor conservative. It's, uh, you can think of it as more protective. Um, but so one of the things is what it, what to think of is what does it mean that the US Supreme Court has already ruled against my claim? Well, it's under the federal constitution and number one, 
those decisions can be suspect based on uh, what, Judge, what Judge Sutton calls the federal, um, the federalism discount. Uh, United States Supreme Court is sometimes pretty hesitant, not always, but pretty hesitant to, to cram a partic particular rule down the throats of all 50 states. Sometimes they say that in their majority opinion. Uh, very important for an advocate who's asking the state Supreme Court to disagree. One last point, and then I'll stop. On um, these, these kinds of uh, decisions where uh, seemingly the US Supreme Court's already ruled on the right that you want to assert, um, there's a very important role for dissenting opinions. I mean, we were all taught in law school, well, don't cite dissenting opinions. Dissenting opinions are there to speak to the future generations of justices on the court 30, 40 years later. Now, with the new judicial federalism, with the uh, recognition that state uh, courts can interpret their constitution to be more, to be more protective, Dissenting opinions can be very important two weeks later in a state Supreme Court. So it's, there's an additional function to the dissents in a, in a U.S. Supreme Court decision like that, that that I think advocates should study very carefully. State Supreme Courts regularly cite U.S. Supreme Court dissents in support of their disagreement with the outcome. Yeah, you know, I think I think that's a great point, Bob, because I think sometimes it comes down to the litigants themselves and what they offer the court. Right. We we hear time and time again, state courts paying lip service to what we all know to be true, that, you know, states are free to interpret their constitutions independently of the federal government. Oftentimes you see that and then there's really no explanation as to what that means or even any kind of deep dive into how that might apply in a particular case. Um, and I think sometimes that's because litigants don't always conceive of those provisions as being unique or different or or having the ability to be interpreted differently. And they just kind of assume when when they brief the court that that those provisions will be interpreted in lockstep. Um, and you know, an example of of widely different interpretations right around the time that the Kilo case was being handed down, Kilo versus New London. Um, by the U.S. Supreme Court, where you have a state redevelopment agency coming in and taking away private property through the eminent domain power of a whole neighborhood of people. Um, of course, the question then becomes, well, you know, what, what is the public purpose in taking away this property and, and essentially using it for a redevelopment project that they hoped to the, would benefit um, the Pfizer Corporation? And as we know, the Supreme Court said in a narrow decision, well, you know, the, the public use there is, uh, you know, increased tax revenue, creation of jobs, the types of things that I said, you know, were not acceptable under a state gift clause analysis. Well, right around that same time, the Arizona courts were hearing a similar case where uh, in the city of Mesa, which is a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona, there was a family owned break shop uh, that had been in existence for a really long time. And the city decided that it would like to get rid of that small break shop and it would rather have a redevelopment project, have a hardware store there. So they were gonna take that property and then subsidize the hardware store. And our courts looked at the eminent domain power differently and it, the same types of justifications were being used. Well, this will be more, more tax revenue to the city of Mesa, um, create more jobs because it's going to be a bigger store. And uh, in Arizona, the appellate court said, no, that's not enough to justify a taking. That isn't a sufficient public purpose. The public benefit has to be you know, substantially predominant. It has to be something that's very clear, very direct, and that has to be the main reason the main result of the taking. So you've got, you know, very two very different interpretations uh, of private property rights there uh, by state and federal court. Um, but then you look at something like the right to privacy was mentioned. Arizona has a really unique um, private affairs clause in its constitution. In fact, I think we are the only state that has it except the state of Washington. Hmm. And, and it says it's a it's framed in more of a positive way. No person's right should be disturbed in their private affairs and go, goes on and adds some references to home, the home and things like that. The Arizona Supreme Court has said this is is even is worded even a little different than, you know, uh, privacy clauses in the U.S. Constitution. It should be interpreted differently. 
Uh, and then the court really hasn't done a whole lot with that. Um, interestingly, the Washington Supreme Court um, really has had a lot of cases developing what that means. And um, it has actually rejected exceptions to the warrant requirement that federal courts have created over the years. But in Arizona, it acknowledges the broader protection, but then the state really hasn't done a whole lot except um, uh, talking about specifically with reference to warrantless searches in homes. It's deviated a little from federal interpretation. So it, it's just it's interesting because there's a lot of room for opportunity there, I think, for courts to extend those broader protection of rights. But I think it comes down to the court's willingness. And I think it also comes down to the litigate, litigants ability to put forth um, those arguments in their briefs. So that's a call to action for everybody. <laughs> well, several of you have alluded to it, and I want to echo the sentiment. I think that for anybody who litigates in the state constitutional realm, it can be a source of frustration when you take these claims to federal court to be told by a federal court for the reasons Bob alluded to that we're hesitant to impose a 50 state solution here. And we're even more hesitant to say what a state constitutional provision means. But then when you take that same claim to state court, you find a state court just sort of echoing what federal jurisprudence is on the same topic as if they have no awareness of the fact that they're fully entitled to interpret their constitutions or to interpret a federal constitutional right more broadly. And I think that that's a sentiment shared irrespective of one's political affiliation if you find yourself litigating the realm. Um, David, you and I talked about that a little bit uh, the last time when we when we did our last panel. Yeah. It's, um, I, anyway. Can I can I expand on that for a second? Please, please. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's all of the issues that Bob and Christina just mentioned are the, those are valid, and and I, I see those happening all the time in California. Um, so I, I think the meta issue here it isn't necessarily whether your state constitution uh, provides a springboard into independent doctrine or not. It's it's frequently the determining factor is is more the willingness or ability of your state court to actually go in that direction. So, you know, so on some issues, uh, a particular state constitution like California's with regard to search and seizure, they might expressly lock to federal law or, and Bob can tell you more about this, you know, some state Supreme Courts have just prospectively lockstepped all of their state constitutional law to federal law. So it could be issue specific or it could be for your whole state constitution. California is a little bit more of a hybrid where sometimes the California Supreme Court will go in a new direction, sometimes they won't, um, sometimes, sometimes They'll they'll go in a direction, but not even discuss whether they're expressly relying on federal law or California law. Mm -hmm. So it can be ambiguous uh, what they're relying on. So so the the willingness of your court to actually do what you're asking them to do, assuming you actually ask for that in the briefs, that that frequently is can be outcome determinative. And I, I think Bob has a, a pretty good fifty state survey he can tell you about that shows that most state courts do simply lock to federal law. Oh, that's right, David, and. Uh... It, it's changing, and and again, it depends on the clause you're talking about. So, uh, but there there's a wide instinct to follow what the United States Supreme Court says if it's interpreting a clause that's the same or or pretty close to the state constitutional clause. And I think Christine is right. A lot of that has to do with the lawyers who appear in front of the court, it's beginning at the trial court level. It's very, very important not to just wait till one gets to the US, to the state Supreme Court to, to make these arguments, to bring them up through the uh, the state appeals courts and, and to the high court in the state. And uh, the, many of the states have developed a jurisprudence, again, that uh, Christina said is sort of given lip service in Arizona, but that's powerful stuff. We have an ob the judges uh, say we have an obligation to take our state constitution seriously. We haven't uh, took an oath to uphold our state constitution. And so it's important for advocates to push hard on that um, uh, and often to uh, strategically, again, depending on the clause and depending how uh, much how how much of the argument has been foreclosed by the U.S. Supreme Court to push very hard on that, and I, I think there's another element of this, and and California was a leader in this. Um, early on, Arizona was too, but I can't remember the justice's name. We in New Jersey uh, were leaders, and it's members of the court who. Uh, have it within their authority to write individual opinions 
either concurring, if they agree with the outcome, but want to uh, elaborate on the state constitutional provision or uh, review these uh, earlier statements about the duty of the court to uh, take its state constitution seriously, and off the bench, writing and speaking. Uh, there was a whole cadre of state Supreme Court justices in the 80s, uh, somewhat to some extent led by Stanley Mosk of uh, California, but Robert Utter of uh, Washington, Hans Lindy, I could name a lot of them, I'm not gonna do that, but who, who wrote law review articles, who spoke at uh, uh, continuing legal education and continuing judicial education uh, programs uh, making these points. So, and then you've got to remember the turnover on these courts is fairly regular and you get people who uh, don't know a darn thing about the state constitution who come onto the court right away, they're writing opinions and their colleagues will help, but they're busy. And uh, so there's a, a, a need for all of these elements to coalesce uh, in terms of taking the state constitu constitution seriously, regardless, regardless if it's a, a, a liberal progressive argument or a concern, I think these are not very good categories, frankly, but, but something that seems more conservative. Uh, all of that matters. Yeah, no, that's great. And um, I want to block out specific time for Q&A, although I think one of these questions is really, really uh, on point with where the discussion is headed. Um, Steve Twist asked, what are the limiting principles to the interpretation of state constitutional provisions to prevent unrestrained judicial activism? For example, how do we do we look to public understanding at the time of the adoption? What does that look like? Are state constitutional um, conventions relevant? I, I actually was just typing an answer to, to that. I thought that was a good question. Go for it, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I was sort of answering it uh, going going from the the end of the question about, um, and again, I, I only really know about California for 50 state stuff, you have to rely on my colleagues here. So speaking from the California perspective, um, I, I would I make two points. One, one is that um, frameworks for looking at issues like this, like originalism and textualism and things like that, that, that you ordinarily would apply to analyzing US Supreme Court, they just don't apply in California uh, for a variety of reasons. But the, the upshot is that, um, yes, California courts, uh, their first referent is often to either uh, the debates. We had two constitutional conventions here in California, or if it's something that made its way into the state constitution through the uh, the initiative amendment process, um, they'll look at they'll look to the ballot arguments, legislative history, or other indicia of of the drafter's intent. So, so in California, uh, again, I would not use. Uh, sort of federal frameworks for looking at, at this kind of stuff, but in, in California, the the initial consideration in inter the interpretation analysis is what the intent of the drafters was, and you determine that by going back and looking at when it was written. So if it was in the 1849 Constitution, you look at that convention, or if it's something that got enacted on last November's ballot, you look at the ballot arguments or the legislative history, depending on whether it was initiated directly by the voters or by the legislature. And I think it can be really difficult in a state like Arizona, which, I mean, we're a relatively young state. Our constitution is, you know, just a little over a century old. But for those who have tried to delve into the Arizona Constitutional Convention, I mean, it's a mess. The records are terrible. There's, there's, you know, they're not indexed well. Um, it's, it's so many things have just been completely lost. Uh, so it's very difficult to do that. Um, and I think some of the answers to these questions just come down to what your theory of interpretation, you know, is generally. Um, if you're somebody who sees the role of the states as similar, the same to the federal constitution in the sense that, you know, they're supposed to be guarantors of, of liberty and protectors of rights, then, you know, you, you look at things through that framework. Um, I think there's something to be said for sort of a conceptual originalism. So even if you're not able to you know, I mean, you look at the text, but um, but obviously things change over time. So, you know, what what did the text sort of mean at the time? Um, a really interesting thing, though, is that when states adopt their constitutions and copy provisions from the federal constitution, there's an argument that, you know, even as federal courts have evolved in their understanding or interpretation of a federal constitutional provision, 
maybe it's right for the state courts to look back to more of the original understanding of where the federal courts were at the time, um, you know, that, that the state courts adopted that provision. So, for example, um, there are a lot of states that interpret their contracts clauses as being uh, much less permissive against the government. The federal courts have more or less written um, provisions that the contracts clause just uh, kind of nullified them and saying that, well, you know, courts can come in and and change contracts and null, uh, you know nullify contracts between private parties or even between the government and private parties. Um, and not all states have done that. And in fact, some states courts have gone so far as to say that when voters vote on, say, bond issues to, you know, allocate money to certain things, that that actually forms a contract in and of itself between the voters and the government, and the government can't deviate, um, you know, and spend that money in other ways. So, and they look back to more original understandings of the contracts clause before you get into the more progressive era where where the court has changed its interpretation. States also borrowed from each other in addition mm -hmm. to the federal constitution. Uh, or, or from the federal constitution borrowed from the states. So a lot of California's constitution was borrowed from Iowa and New York. So it's it's not uncommon for California Supreme Court to look back at constitutional debates in, in other states to figure out what they meant when they enacted the provision that we borrowed from them. But I think all the panelists, go ahead, Bob. Well, just a couple of quick things here. There are really a lot of you could tell from the, the both the, the two panelists, there are a number of really quite unique judicial interpretation techniques in state constitutional law that are quite unheard of in federal con law. I mean, how many times does the Madison's notes on the US Constitution really play much of a role? A little bit here and there. And I don't want Christina to scare you away from your own state constitutional records. Uh, just yeah, they're very good in California. Lousy, sorry? They're very good in California. I mean, we in New Jersey, they're five volumes, they're online, they're searchable. No, they don't give, they're like legislative history of statutes. They often don't give you a specific answer. But uh, I had a case once and I came up with a question. I went to the University of Pennsylvania Library. There were nine volumes on the 1873 Constitutional Convention in Pennsylvania. I found the exact answer to and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ignored the, the way I treated it in my brief. But, you know, it, don't give up on that. It's, it's something, and particularly when you have, once you have your first case, teach yourself how to use those documents, how to find them, and you'll have that for the rest of your legal career. Um, and finally, real quickly, in 49, Delaware is the only exception, in all the other 49 states, we vote on our state constitutions, either a revised constitution like you all did in California in 79, I guess it was. It was uh, a constitutional we, revision, yeah. Yeah, a whole, and we in New Jersey, 1947. And uh, most state courts, it's quite fictional, but they say, we try to interpret these provisions in light of what the average intelligent, intelligent voter would have thought they mean. Now, come on. but. There's evidence of that in newspaper editorials. How, how many federal con law lawyers would think to look at newspaper editorials the, the month before people voted on a provision? I just filed and an amicus this. brief where, where I listed examples of newspaper articles from 1911. So I spent two weeks reading archived newspaper articles from 1911 so I could explain to the court what the voters meant when they enacted a constitutional provision. Yeah. So so don't give up on these kind of historical techniques. Of course, the text is important and all that. And of course, uh, state constitutions are layered often. So like a statute, the original version said this, it was amended at this point in time, then it was later amended. There's a not always, but a build not so often with the rights clauses, but there there's just a lot more to them uh, than we know from studying the federal constitution. One other thing, thing I would add just really briefly, though, is, you know, with reference to the um, amendment process where we're talking about initiatives, some states, you know, allow for that amendment process to their constitution. I mean, that can be a real mess when it comes to interpretation. Um, and, and I think there's been some questions, too, in the chat just about, 
you know, is is that problematic in general? Um, I think there are a lot of concerns um, in a state like Arizona. It's very easy uh, to amend the state constitution. I guess that's true in California too. I often joke with students that the federal society- Do you have some thoughts about that? As a pocket constitution, um, you would not, you know, you'd have to have like huge pockets to be able to carry around a copy of the California constitution. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like not a, that big. That's, that's and he big. has it on him, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. I, I should. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, the, when you look at how relatively easy it is, you know, say in a state like Arizona to amend the constitution, I mean, you get signatures to put something on the ballot. You don't even have to collect signatures from all the geographic regions of the state of Arizona. So you could spend yeah. a little bit of time in Phoenix, a little bit of time in Tucson, ignore what the rest of the state wants, get it on the constitution. It's a relatively low bar. You look at the, you know, the ballot, we're talking about interpreting what the provisions mean by looking at ballot arguments. Well, you know, such a, a small portion of the population is even participating in that. And we know there's enough trouble with uh, with looking at legislative intent or even looking at constitutional conventions. These ballot arguments are all over the place. Um, and uh, so it's I, I mean, I do think that it is a little concerning. And I think that's why we see state constitutions start to look a little bit more like constitutionalized, something that should actually be statutory versus you know, really putting into place some structural protections for the protection of rights. Braden, I, I, I hate to take advantage of my Burt Reynolds status, but I think we just developed our topic for the next one of these talks is to have me and Christina debate the relative values of the initiative process, because I will happily defend it. I love it. <laughs> Do it. Bring it on. <laughs> I love it, too. There's always a spot for you on my couch, Bert. So Thank you just got to wear the red jacket. Um, well, I, you know, I think it's fair to say, and it, to tie up the point, that um, the interpretive tools in the toolbox aren't substantively different than the interpretive tools that you have in the federal toolbox, but there's a whole host of difficulties that are just state specific. Yeah. You know, for instance, in Tennessee, our original constitution was enacted in 1796. Tennessee was the Wild West at that point in time. There are no Federalist Papers. There are no Madison Notes. There's almost no written archives to reflect what they were thinking about when they enacted their constitutional provisions. Christina alluded to anti-monopolies clauses earlier. Tennessee's got an anti-monopolies clause that's been in there from 1796. And it says that monopolies and perpetuities are, um, uh, I think, enemies of a free state and shall not be allowed. Um, shall not be allowed is forceful language. And we've got a constitutional provision that has no federal analog. And of course, there's plenty of federal jurisprudence on the constitutionality of a monopoly. So how does one go about interpreting what is and is not a monopoly? if there's not a legislative record. Well, to Christina's point, it derives from a North Carolina constitutional law provision. And in fact, there was back and forth between Madison and Jefferson about the inclusion of an anti-monopolies clause in the federal constitution. Jefferson wanted one, Madison nixed it. But you can find in these sort of out of the way archival sources, relevant and timely discussions to show what would have been understood under the original public meaning if that's the interpretive tool that you're inclined to go with. Um, but you know, we've talked enough about the specific provisions themselves. It's not just that they contain these distinct sub substantive provisions. When, how, and why might a state find ways to depart from federal law? David, you want to launch that discussion? Yeah. Um... My perspective on this is that it's it's relatively easy for a court to write an opinion departing from federal law, e even if there's identity between the state constitutional provision and the federal analog. Um, you can just disagree. Uh, I, I read the same words. They, they mean something different to me, uh, either because I, I have a different view of the law or because it was enacted in a different time in a different context in my state because um, the conditions in my state are different. Uh, you know, so e even even for identical analogs, uh, a state court can go in a different direction, uh, and that's been true in California in some instances. Um, and obviously, if you get into things that are you know textually different, that makes it easier. If you get into things that are unique to your state constitution, it makes it even easier. Arguably mandatory, um, but I, I think you know, referring back to something we were talking about earlier, what's what's harder than finding a basis in your state constitution for departing from federal law is finding the will to do it. Um, and, and this is where uh, I would reference Bob's uh, excellent 50 state survey about um, which states do expressly lock their state constitutional doctrine to federal law. 
um, and then it subdivides based on some states do it partially or sometimes, or it depends on the issue or changed over time, like in California for um, search and seizure things. So, you know, so you have some states where, where they've made an express decision to lock to federal law. Um, it, that makes it for an uphill climb if you're an advocate arguing for an independent state constitutional provision, um, because the existing law is we, we just don't do that in X state. Um, and even in states where the law isn't expressly locked to federal doctrine, you, you still may face an uphill climb because it takes some judicial willingness to craft an independent state constitutional doctrine on whatever issue of choices. Um, and, and California is kind of a cautionary tale here because um, the California Supreme Court, uh, particularly in the 60s under Chief Justice Rose Byrd, uh, did craft some independent state constitutional law um, that either got rolled back by later iterations of the court or by the voters, or, or the court has, has struggled since then to, to really define the contours of, of what California's independent constitutional law on, on these issues is. So, so it's, unfortunately, it, this is an area of state constitutional law, where, which I don't think is very encouraging for advocates. Uh, it can be a bit of an uphill climb. Let me, may I just say two quick Please. things about that? One is when a state court says we are going to interpret our uh, constitutional clause the same way the U.S. Supreme Court does now and in the future, I think advocates should realize that's, that cannot be a binding precedent. How can the court interpret cases it's never heard in the future? It just doesn't make sense. Well, and of course, which version of federal constitutional law are we talking about since it, it itself is in flux at times? Yeah, and that, that's an interesting variation on this. You could have a state Supreme Court that says, we are following federal constitutional law, and then you read that along with a federal opinion, and they look very different because the state court has just either read it differently or got it wrong or silently interpreted differently while saying that they were doing the same things a federal court would do. That, that does happen too, but... Many people say, well, the court's already decided it always follows the federal First Amendment doctrine. I don't think it can just, that can't be binding on a future court. And very quickly, some courts have already answered your question. They've, they've uh, adopted opinions. I could probably name 10, I'm not going to do it, which have said, here's how you present an argument for, to convince us to diverge from federal con law. Mm -hmm. And many lawyers miss those cases and they start from scratch and they usually include four or five criteria that does the text read the same? Okay, it does. Oops, what's next? What's the constitutional history? You could have something pretty different. And it goes on down to unique state. Uh, Colorado said that you had to have a warrant to search somebody's tent because Colorado uniquely welcomes campers and stuff that prosecutors hate but uh but but there's already a template set out in a number of states here's how we interpret our constitution so uh practitioners need and judges need to look for those cases and you know david made a good point earlier when you're talking about the difference in scrutiny i mean that can make all the difference too right so you look at a state like california you mentioned the lack of intermediate scrutiny, um, you know, back in the um, early to mid uh, 20th century, a lot of states had laws affecting women's ability to work. And there were states that put laws into place that said, you know, women can't be bartenders, for example, and it's for their own good. It's because it's dangerous or it's immoral. Um, and the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court upheld uh, most of those laws at the time and, you know, said that these were designed to help women and, um, and, and at the time they weren't maybe explicitly talking about the level of scrutiny, but they were, you know, clearly applying some sort of rational basis or intermediate eventually scrutiny. Um, you get to California where gender-based discrimination gets strict scrutiny, um, in the state and California Supreme Court struck down, a law in California that said that women couldn't be bartenders, specifically saying that, you know, that this is that this is treating um, women with, I think they said, a stigma of inferiority um, and, you know, second class citizenship. And so um, a very different um, result, uh, even though I think everything else was more or less the same. But it's it's the it's the weight that you give toward you know, what the government has done and how much you're deferring to the democratic branches versus protecting 
someone's right, you know, to liberty. I mean, this, the California uh, Supreme Court claims that the right to earn a living is a fundamental right. I, I don't think they interpret their constitution that way most of the time, but they, but you can still find that in the case law. And, uh, but right. So like, what is the, what is the degree of protection for the right? And then, you know, and for, um, for the classification that's created and that can make all the difference in the outcome. Raiden, can I follow up on that equal protection yeah, sure. point? It's a really good example of what we've been talking about um, of, of both how federal and state law can diverge and the somewhat counterintuitive results you can get from that. And I, I think equal protection in California is a really good example of that because um, California equal protection doctrine, since it lacks intermediate scrutiny, um, everything in equal protection analysis as a practical matter comes down to defining the suspect class and whether it is a suspect class, because that, you know it's binary. You either get rational basis and the statute probably gets upheld or you get strict scrutiny and the statute probably gets struck down. So it all comes down to suspect class. And, and that was one of the big turning points in same-sex marriage litigation here in California, where arguably because of the limitations on California's equal protection doctrine, the California Supreme Court found itself painted into a corner and had to upheld California's initiative ban on same-sex marriage. So you have supposedly liberal blue California using its equal protection doctrine to rule against same-sex marriage, and then the U.S. Supreme Court going the opposite direction and upholding it. So it's a very interesting little microcosm of of the differences between state and federal law and, and how differences interpretation can can yield not just different results, but but arguably counterintuitive, unexpected results. Hey, hey Bob, are there historical reasons for why structurally state constitutional rights were intended to be the primary guarantors of liberty? Well, of course, uh, the original catalogs or declarations of rights were in the state constitutions for that 11 years before the U.S. Constitution was drafted or 13 years before the Bill of Rights was drafted. And then of course, the Bill of Rights was viewed for, what is it, a century or so, as only limiting the US government. People don't realize this. It is interesting, there's some recent uh, scholarship that shows state courts were, were applying the federal constitution anyway. Uh, I was quite surprised when I saw this. But the other thing is that the idea of the federal, the reason that it didn't originally have a Bill of Rights was the thought was the structure of it would protect rights. And a, there's a very important distinction with the state constitutions where the US Constitution enumerates rights. And yes, it has, a, I'm sorry, enumerates powers and sets up a sort of a seemingly limited federal government, although one never knows. Uh, and it, it yeah, how'd that work out? It moves back and forth a little bit, but uh, but the state constitutions don't enumerate powers. They they give all legislative power to the state legislature, except as limited in the U.S. Constitution and limited in the state constitution. So, other than the rights clauses, most of what's in state constitutions is is either the entrenchment of policy decisions, uh, with. with People like to make fun of the ski trails in the New York Constitution, and all those are there for a reason, by the way. But but mainly, what's in the, what's operative in state constitutions is uh, why can't the legislature pass such a law? You know, at the, in federal con law, we say why can Congress enact such a law, uh, and often it's because we they feel like it. But uh, so the there even though state constitutions are called constitutions, they actually have, actually have a, a very different political function, which is basically to limit an otherwise unlimited government. Um, and so these very different uh, ideas of, of, of the state and federal governments, I think, uh, led us for many, many years to think of the states as having the primary function to protect people. And this is one of the common explanations for why state constitutions tend to be a bit longer and they have things in them that look more like legislation. You know, why isn't this a statute? Well, we need it in there to limit the legislature. That's one of the big functions of a state constitution. I would argue, um, you know, that that even though some of the state constitutions predate the federal constitution, that actually when our federal constitution was written, it really was 
supposed to be uh, the primary guarantor of liberty. Um, and, and I think it's because, you know, when you look at when the Constitution was written, first of all, it's a, it's a rejection of the Articles of Confederation, right? The Constitution is not an alliance of states. The Constitution is very specifically written for we the people. Um, and so federal government is, you know, retaining these limited powers for the specific purpose to protect rights. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because this country was was birthed, was founded when the the Revolutionary War was fought when the Declaration of, Pe of Independence was adopted. And so, you know, the Declaration of Independence establishes the United States, uh, you know, as, as we're going into the Fourth of July holiday, right, at, for the first time in human history as a nation based on the principle that rights do not come from the government, but they're natural. Government exists for the sole purpose of protecting rights. And so I think um, now certainly the courts have failed in this respect, but I think it was very clear to the founding fathers and to the framers of the constitution, um, not just that, that the constitution would structurally protect rights, but that in fact, the constitution was to be read in the spirit of the Declaration of Independence. And that's why it was a pretty limited document just laying out the structure of the government, because the whole point of of that government, it was that it existed to protect rights. Um, but of course, we had to fight a civil war um, in large part over that that question. Right. And so, um, you know, to Bob's point, we did not see the United States Supreme Court applying the Bill of Rights um, or any type of rights based framework against you know, things that the states did until we see the post-Civil War amendments. Um, and that's when we started to see the, indoctrine, uh, the uh, doctrine of incorporation, rather. And of course, most rights in the Bill of Rights have, have since been one by one incorporated against the states. Um, but even like, even after the Civil War, I mean, every state that got admitted to the Union after the Civil War, I think a lot of people don't realize they they not only had to offer up a constitution that was consistent with the federal constitution, but they also had to offer up a constitution that was consistent with the principles of the Declaration of Independence. And so I think, you know, that is why I really look at the state constitutions. Clearly, I work for a federalism organization. I think that they're extremely important, but I see them more as the last line of defense. I think that the federal constitution has always been intended to be a guarantor of, of liberty and, and there have been failures there. Um, and so therefore, you know, the civil war sort of shifted things and now functionally, uh, you know, I, I think it, it, it in theory functions more that way now. David, do you see partisan sorting affecting any of these considerations? Mm, yes and no. Um, I, 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 think it, I think it depends on your point of view. So, you know, one, one way of looking at partisan sorting is, um, is that it's bad. It makes the country more divided. Um, it, it enhances uh, other negative trends um, and, and it, ten, it tends to focus Attention, more attention than is necessary on on the blue state versus red state divide. Um, there's another way of looking at it, uh, which you know tries to take a, a positive view on it, which is that um, in the short term it can renew focus on state politics, uh, and that's probably positive. Um, it, it has federalism enhancing benefits uh, if if the overall uh, result is people renewing their focus on their state constitutions and driving new arguments about expanding state constitutional rights, whatever, whatever your, that particular right happens to be, you know, so, you know, in Texas, it could be driving gun rights under your state constitution or in California it could be driving uh, abortion rights under, under our state constitution. So in, in general, focusing on state constitutions, it has potential rights expanding benefits. It has potential federalism enhancing benefits. Um, whether, you know, that's, that's in the short and the intermediate term. Um, but if, if the long-term, my concern is that the long-term trend is that uh, it could settle into a pattern of a, of a less active federal government um, and more active states that, that essentially uh, enhance the, the, the voting with our feet sorting out pattern. And so you wind up with two Americas that, uh, that largely don't talk to each other. And I, I can't imagine that that would be healthy for the body politic. Excuse me. It makes me think of what Lincoln said about a house divided, not not standing sure. to, to yeah. loop back to Christina's Civil War reference. Um, well, uh, Christina, we got to close here. I'm going to give you the final question here. This comes to you from a Jay Riches 
but he asked if we're perhaps focusing too much on state constitutions and not enough on alien constitutions. In particular, he wants to know whether or not we should be taking a closer look at science fiction constitutions and would the fact that you can only be reading in low Vulcan affect your ability to properly interpret the Wookiee constitution? I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, have been, I have been pranked before, but this one, it goes to a whole new level. That's I, amazing. I, I very I'm just, much, I'm just reading the questions here, Christina. Can you, know, you, please you know, Your Honor, could I ask for yeah. an additional, I don't know, four hours of time so that I can address that, that question? Uh, <laughs> well, just, just tell us, can we read the Wookiee Constitution if we only speak low Vulcan? Hey, look, I, I'll, I'll tell you what, it, there's the Wookiee Constitution, right? I mean, the, we don't talk about fantasy. Star Wars is all about fantasy. If we want to talk about logic and constitutionalism and freedom and things like that, then we can talk about Star Trek. And, and then I'd be happy to go through and, and explain all that to you. I'm sure David and Robert would be delighted to join us in your I'm expose. Sure they would. <laughs> when I tell my wife that was one of the last questions. <laughs> is she a is she a Star Wars or Star Trek fan? Neither. Oh. <laughs> go go for it, Christina. I know what the Wookiee Constitution might mean, but go for it, Christina. Unload. <laughs> I I I think we don't I think we don't uh, we don't have the time or the interest. <laughs> be able to get into that brighton in fact i'm looking at the participant level just <laughs> well okay well this has been the hours up uh jack i'm going to hand it back to you now um but i really appreciate everyone's time here can't thank you all enough for taking the time for this though it was a fantastic discussion and i only wish we had more time for wookie questions and otherwise <laughs> and thank you so much to our audience for tuning in as well. You can check out our website at regproject.org or follow us on any of the major social media platforms at FedSocRTP to stay up to date. Thank you so much.